You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. How I treat HS in 2018. My hope is that this talk will be wildly different in 2019. Um, there is a lot of advancement, and one of the main take-home points that I would love for you to walk out of here with is clinical trial, clinical trial, clinical trial. So clinical trials are a fantastic first-line option for patients with stage 2 and stage 3 disease. So if you leave remembering nothing else, remember clinical trial. So yes and. Does anybody know what yes and is the first rule of? Improv, yes. So when I first started treating people with HS, I was like, I've got topical clindamycin, chlorhexidine, and doxycycline. That's, that's what we've got. You know? And so I felt like I had to kind of figure out something more than that. So yes and became my approach to treating people with HS because yes and helps me be realistic with them. Like, yes, you can try dietary therapy and let's talk about what I know about oral doxycycline pulses. This is also the opportunity to change something. So I tell patients, let's try this. I want to reevaluate you. They come back in. They say, doc, I like this. I hated this. I'm like, yes, and let's switch this up. So it's always kind of the constant pivoting and constant kind of creativity. So what I'm going to try and have you walk out with is that yes, and means combining medical and surgical treatment. We are not talking like entire armpits removed. We're going to talk about surgical therapies you can do in your office that are relatively simple and easy to do. Yes, and is going to be to remember that the treatments we administer to people have side effects. And some of these are sort of just coming up and getting talked about. And yes, and means we need to start to learn from all those other things that we use in different skin conditions and how can we apply them in HS. So pre-questions, which of these is a topical therapy that can be used for new or existing lesions in HS? All right. So what I'm going to tell you about is how resourcenol is making a comeback. What's old is new again. So benzoyl peroxide is something we use very commonly for acne. It definitely has a place in HS. So a lot of people are told, oh, go get this chlorhexidine, the Hibiclens, the Fizahex, which are sometimes pretty pricey. Benzoyl peroxide can be a few dollars and kills everything. It does not have a narrow spectrum or only kill gram positives, doesn't cost $22. And as I'm going to talk about in a little while, it can help probably tame the risk of bacteria developing resistance to antibiotics. It's why we combine it into our acne regimens all the time. We're throwing doxycycline, tetracycline, minocycline, all these antibiotics at people with acne. We're like, oh yeah, and don't forget your benzoyl peroxide. That's part of the acne guideline because the BPO helps prevent resistance in those bacteria to all the antibiotics we're using in acne. It probably does the same thing in HS. You're going to probably suggest a wash anyway, so why not use a cheap one that can help mitigate resistance? 
All right, pre-question two. How much time does it take for intralesional steroids to result in a significant improvement in pain? All right, most of you are pretty optimistic. I like the fact that you went with one or two days. The answer is one day. So when you do that intralesional catalog, you can give that little bit of hope that at least for this lesion, by tomorrow at this time, you should really be feeling a lot better. That's nice to walk out of the office knowing, especially after you just poked them with a needle in a pretty painful spot. Combination medical and surgical therapy is an option for which stage of HS? Stage one, two, three, two and three, one, two and three. So the answer here is one, two, and three. There are quick, easy, minor surgeries that you can do to a stubborn and persistent nodule in your office in the same amount of time it takes you to, say, do a punch of a pigmented lesion you're worried about. So one, two, and three is the option here for surgery and medical therapy. And which of these is a first-line surgical therapy for, say, a persistent nodule in stage 1 HS? Is it a de-roofing marsupialization, which is where you sort of open it up in a linear way, uh, in a lesional excision, which is cutting out the entire thing, or regional, which is the whole armpit or whole groin? Good, so de-roofing is at least my preferred procedure for a nodule that just stays over and over in the same place. And so I think it's just important to kind of realize, and I've learned this from my patients, that HS, while it has recurrent nodules and abscesses, it's not just that they're sort of relapsing and remitting and one pops up in another place and then another, sort of like that groundhog game is how they talk about it, my patients. You can have one that just kind of keeps lighting up and going down and flaring up and going down over and over in the same place. And so this is that kind of lesion where a very quick and minor surgical procedure like the de-roofing can really help. So we know HS causes all these different morphologies of lesions small papules, more big, large, deeper nodules. Some of those nodules become fluid-filled abscesses, and uh, fistulas are where you get two that are connecting, so sort of a tunnel under the skin. And this is a term that really resonates uh, with patients and is becoming more and more commonly used in the literature, this tunnel idea. Sometimes they're open to the skin, and there's an erosion or ulcer. Sometimes they close up, and you just get the sense that there's this tunnel that's not draining. Certainly it does favor the body folds, but the neck, even the face, um, the lower leg can be an atypical place. For people who have sort of folds on their sides, it can pop up in those folds as well. We mentioned that onset is pretty typical early in life, around, you know, I'd say 12 to 30. I definitely have some patients who didn't develop it until they were 40, 50, or even 60. 
And as much as we talk about, you know, acne becoming less common, especially in our women, we're like, you know what, your acne, it's going to go away. I just don't know when. I can't say that about HFs. I don't know when it's going to go away because I still have these older patients who have it. Women are more favored. And this is a really common experience for these patients. They say, you know what, HS is this roller coaster from hell. I have bad times, I have good times, I have bad times, I have good times, and I never know when the next bad time is going to happen, and I never know when it's going to go away. Because you never know when you're going to get a new lesion or how long that lesion is going to persist. They don't always go away. So the treatment approach is really based on how severe the disease is. And for a really long time, I felt like I had to hold some of the, you know, more strong, I would say, like injectable medications or infused medications and hold them back for the people with the worst disease. If anything, I've learned from the conversations of people with the HS, I need to jump on those people early and often because it does have such a profound effect on their ability to work and their you know, psyche, their identity of themselves. Just as we walk in, we see a teenager with scarring acne, we look at those three little scars and we say, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of worried you have scarring acne, would you consider taking this isotretinoin? You know, we could really help that. We need to do that with HS. We need to see the scarring and we need to jump on it early and we need to jump on it often. And this is a change that's really being suggested by some of the leaders uh, with expertise in HS. Don't wait for them to look like stage three before offering them a clinical trial or a biologic. When they have stage two where they're sort of in between stage one and stage two, offer them the medication that's gonna help stop the scarring. And the idea that stage one, if you look at the definitions, is technically a non-scarring disease, that's incredibly rare. A lot of these patients, even with a small number of nodules, have scarring disease. And this picture of stage one shows a really important finding, that if you see this in somebody, these little blackheads or these comedones in places like the medial thigh or the underarm, that is HS until proven otherwise. Because people come in on a good day sometimes, and they don't have a big, hot, tender nodule that makes you feel pretty comfortable that they have HS. Sometimes they come in the first time they have a nodule, and so you don't have that history of this relapsing and remitting course. But if you see that person on a good day, or you see them on that first flare, but you see these comedones, think of HS. And so I want to work through treatment just with a couple of cases. So this is Ray. She's a 19-year-old young, young woman who came in for treatment. And this is her underarm, so you kind of can get the sense of these dilated follicles or these little comedones happening here. And again, she's got stage 1 disease without a lot of confluent nodules. She doesn't have the horrible deforming ropey scars of stage 3, but she still does have scars. And believe it or not, this level of scarring is what changes people's willingness to wear short sleeves, wear a tank top, go wear a bathing suit, have a job where you would have to lift up your arm. The fact that you have a tender nodule, I have a woman who is a chef, and you know she has to constantly explain to her coworkers why she can't like raise her arm to open the oven or reach for something because she has such a tender nodule there. So even stage one and stage two disease really bear aggressive therapy. And this idea of yes and, combining medical yes and surgical treatment, there are things we can do for every stage of the disease that are medical and surgical. 
So these are the things that I think are kind of the, the things ingrained in our heads. Use a topical, which a lot of people think is topical clindamycin, but I'm going to talk about topical resorcinol as a compounded option. Oral antibiotics, doxycycline. I'm going to talk about how using doxycycline at a low dose, which is sub-antimicrobial, might be attractive to some of those patients who are not interested in maybe affecting their microbiome. This is uh, more and more a concern of my patients. They don't want to harm their good bacteria. And so just as we use low-dose doxycycline in rosacea, there's data to show that it can work in acne, and sometimes I use it for those people in HS while there is not data to support it at this point. And you guys asked really good questions about the role of spironolactone, of finasteride, of metformin. These are all really good adjunctive things. And I list all these things on the screen at the same time because I often give people all three at the same time. It's a pretty rare situation that somebody can just take doxy and be fine, or just use clindamycin and be fine, or just take spironolactone and be fine. And so I look at it as I want to have something in your body all the time to maybe put off the next flare. So let's, let's see if we can get you on spironolactone and have you, you handle it. Now, that's only a good option for women. Men get gynecomastia, not a pleasant side effect, so don't use it in them. Um, finasteride is an option for both uh, sexes, and metformin at a dose of 500 milligrams at a place to start can be helpful. I haven't had a lot of success with it, but if somebody does have type 2 diabetes and I talked to their PCP and they were thinking about it anyway, then great, two birds, one stone. But again, I'm putting them on the spironolactone with pulses of, say, doxycycline, whether it's low dose, 20 milligrams or 40 milligrams, or regular dose, like 100 milligrams. I'll give them the antibiotic for four weeks, six weeks, or eight weeks as sort of a pulse but not as something that I'm leaving them on forever. So many of our dermatology guidelines, whether it be acne or rosacea, is really moving in the direction of using antibiotics in pulses. You hit it, you use it, you gain a benefit, and you try and ride out whatever kind of improvement you can get afterwards. In the HS, I'm not sure how long that improvement lasts. So that's why I need to have something else on board, and I need to have some topicals that are effective. But, and surgical. So when somebody has a painful boil, what options do they have? They can stop what they're doing, drive into my office, have me inject it with Kenalog, or punch de-roof it. The other option is the topical resorcinol, and that's why I use it. It's because I'm hoping it can help address the flare before they come into the office. But if they're there or that topical resorcinol isn't helping, I'm going to show you some of the data about interrelational Kenalog and what a punch de-roof looks like and how you can incorporate it, hopefully, into your practice. Laser hair removal gets talked about a lot on some of the blogs for people with HS. There is a little bit, bit of data to show that, at least for early-stage disease, using NDAG laser, IPL, any kind of device that does hair removal can help decrease some of the severity of the lesions or maybe decrease the severity of the disease. But these are small studies. It's very hard to be completely optimistic, meaning to say, you definitely need to do this. It is for sure going to help your disease. And that's because the data isn't good enough and also because it's not covered. 
So all of these patients are paying out of pocket when they get the hair removal laser. I've had a lot of people be willing to do it. I've had a few people who felt like it really helped their disease and they don't need to take as much medicine. So keep in the back of your mind. This is another uh, handout. We, um, we have a few places on our campus and in the community that do hair removal. I work at an academic center, so we have this nasty facility fee for a lot of things. Um, and so we do give people a list or a handout of all the regional uh, or all the places in our region who do hair removal. So uh, that's another handout we have just for these HS patients. But as we move forward, there are going to be clinical trials coming out of topicals and that are focused on early stage disease like stage one. So while I harp on clinical trials for those stage two and stage three patients, please keep in mind that there's more and more, um, just as the pediatric dermatologist earlier was talking about all the development being done for atopic eczema, there is a lot being done for HS as well. So for this young woman, my approach would be topical clindamycin, I ask her to consider the topical resorcinol. Um, this is a compounded medication, so some people can get it uh, reimbursed by the insurance and others can't. I'll give you the recipe in just a second. I would suggest to her, because she's a woman, even if she doesn't have a report that she flares with periods, she's a woman, she has hormones, they're probably contributing in some way. I suggest spironolactone, and I often use 100 milligrams once a day. Occasionally, I go up to 100 in the morning and maybe 50 at night. So 150 tends to be my max dose before people start to have some of the breast tenderness or spotting in between their periods. And I mentioned the doxycycline, sort of impulses of weeks, four, six, eight, something like that. It always has an end date. It is not something that I want people thinking they're going to be on continuously but also the option of having them know if they get a really bad lesion, please call me. Like, I want you to be able to go on that trip. I will work you into clinic, I will do the injection, or I'll do that punch de-roofing. So what's the data on this catalog that we offer to people? This was a study that was done looking at intralesional catalog, 10 milligrams per ml. They injected, on average, about three quarters of an ml into a lesion like this one. And they said, you know what, we're going to take lesions up to two centimeters, which is almost an inch in diameter. So these are not small lesions. These are the very typical hefty, deep nodules and abscesses. And then they asked people to score their pain each day on a scale from one to 10. And on day zero, their pain on average was five and a half. But you can see that black bar. There's a lot of variation in how much pain these patients had. By the next day, 24 hours later, there was a st statistically significant difference in their pain down to two. This is an incredibly meaningful improvement. And even by the third day, it was continuing to improve even lower down to one. But what's important is as you see that graph go out, it's already starting to eke back upwards. The scores can sometimes go up. And I've had patients where I did catalog on one thigh and I did a punch de-roofing on the other. The punch de-roofing lesion stayed away pretty well. The one where I did the catalog, it flared back up right at the edge. I could see the red nodule. And then she also had this area of hypopigmentation. So not only did I not keep the lesion away, 
but there are side effects. And uh, in this image, you can see a little bit of that atrophy, which certainly could be the inflammation of the fat and the loss of that fat substance due to just the HS itself. But Ken Log has this effect um, on lesions where it's going to cause a slight indentation. But with you know, sort of the right preparation or education, this can be really helpful. So this is Ludwig. Ludwig discovered resorcinol back in 1864. He did not know how important it was. So resorcinol is something that's been around for a long time and has been used in dermatology for a couple of different things. So we use it in acne. It's a 2% that you can get over the counter. Um, uh, that people can put on to sort of dry up pestering uh, papules. But it's also in Jesner's solution. And so, uh, you know, when I had to take uh, exams in dermatology, they were always asking, you know, what, what's the problem with Jesner's? What's the side effect? What does it do to? And it was always resorcinol. So if there was a multiple choice question, the answer was always resorcinol is a big problem. Now, that's not true when we use it in a concentration of about 15%. So when you go into concentrations of 40 and 50% and you rub it all over your body or drink it, that is a problem. But when you use it at 15% in a cream, there have been two studies that I'll show you the data from. It is really, really helpful and absolutely safe. You want to set people's expectations. It causes a little bit of peeling, so it causes an inflammation of the skin, which is normal. But if you ask patients, you say, like, do you ever have peeling when a lesion goes away? They say yes. So at this point, the peeling is to be expected and not any worse than they might usually experience. And there can be a little hyperpigmentation, which is also sometimes a really common side effect of an HS lesion going away. Um, we're lucky to have two, two really good uh, compounding pharmacies in our area. So I send these over uh, to the pharmacy. The pharmacy calls the patient and says, you know, Jocelyn just sent this prescription. Do you really want it? It's going to cost about $45. The patient says, yes, I'm willing to pay the $45. That $45 includes the shipping that they then ship it to their house. So uh, in our area, Chambersburg is, you know, two hours away. So nobody's going to drive down there and pick it up. Um, and so 30 grams really goes a long way. It's a pretty good um, amount. And what they do is they rub it on twice a day. So there was a study seven or eight years ago, which I am astounded by the fact that nobody did anything with it at that point. Nobody, I don't remember hearing anything. So in 2010, there was a study of resorcinol used only once a day at the first sign of a flare-up. Um, and they asked people to rate their pain uh, and what they noticed was at the beginning, uh, usually they'd have pain for nine days with a flare-up. Nine days of waiting for this lesion to stop causing you pain. Using resorcinol decreased it to less than three. A really substantial improvement. The amount of pain they had during a flare, again on a scale from zero to 10, went from seven to less than three. Very similar improvement to what we saw with the intralesional catalog. Seven years later, they're trying to still reinforce this important point. So they do a second study with a higher number of women, still with stage one and two disease, same concentration, using it twice a day. And they said, now I want you to take a persistent lesion, something that was there and is not going away. And we want you to rub the resorcinol cream on there for the next month. 
So they did a prospective evaluation of the lesions. They found that clinically when you looked at them, 84% of them had gone away. 84% of something that had been there and wasn't going away. And when they did ultrasound, which is something that um, is becoming maybe a little more common in HS because we can't always see beyond the skin, um, they found that we're a little optimistic when we judge things clinically. Uh, about 67% had gone away as judged by ultrasound. But what's really important to our patients is this pain. So their pain at the beginning of the study was almost five out of that scale from zero to 10. By day seven, it was much improved, just like the results from the first study, rapid improvement in just a week, and sustained improvement for that whole month. So this is something that I now, if people can afford it, I ask them to use at the first sign of a new lesion, or if they have a one that's really pestering them and isn't going away and they're not a big fan of, say, a punchy roofing, I suggest the resorcinol. And again, these most common side effects of peeling and post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. And these are some of the images. So the top image is of, this is a closed tunnel on the inside of the thigh. This is that peeling and hyperpigmentation. And here you can see the resolved lesion. Here is a persistent nodule and how it's much clinically improved after seven days and even better looking at 30 days. And so far, I've had patients really, really like the resourcenal. And just feeling like they don't have to drop everything they're doing. They have something they can do at home. And if it doesn't work, then they can call me. So punch de-roofing, this is basically a punch biopsy, but of an HS nodule or abscess. And so you have all these things in your office. I usually use a four millimeter punch. I numb it up. I put the punch right over the top. It does not have to drain pus. There is something about surgically injuring the skin that kind of converts this inflammatory response from something that was just kind of pestering and cycling and just causing pain and causing redness but never actually resolving itself. Doing a surgical injury to this, it could be a nodule, it could be an abscess, kind of converts the immune system to be like, oh, what are you doing? You're causing trouble, like go away. And it heals in with just the pox scar from the punch. Um, I don't pack these. Uh, I didn't even consider it. Uh, but I've had patients say, you're not going to pack it, are you? Because so often they've been to the ER where the person called to the ER to take care of their HS as a surgeon. What do surgeons do when they see an abscess? They incise it, they drain it, and then they pack stuff in there. And patients say that was the worst experience of my life. So you don't need to pack it. There's not, no reason to keep that pocket open. It's going to heal in just fine from the bottom. So I just put in a little bit of either aluminum chloride just on a swab. I just put it right in the hole or a little bit of gel foam. And then we slap a Band-Aid on it, and we're good to go. So what does that look like? These are pretty typical lesions of what I'd consider doing a punch de-roofing on. So this one is kind of a persistent lesion. Doesn't look like much on the surface, but if you palpate it, there's a pretty good nodule under there. You can see a little bit more of the edema that's causing this nodule to raise up. These two would be perfect. Again, whether they're nodules or abscesses doesn't matter. So I usually do procedures with two hands, but I was holding a camera uh, when I was doing this. So uh, this is Ray, 
and uh, she, this is her flank. So she's laying down, this is her flank, kind of horizontal, um, and this is a red nodule. Put a four millimeter punch over it. I hub it, you don't have to, but I did. I take out, this is uh, just using my forceps to pull that tissue out at our center. I can send this down to the PhD researcher I work with and she gets to figure out why that nodule is there and what's happening. Um, this is what it looks like immediately afterwards, but you don't stop there. The difference between a punch biopsy and a punch de-roofing is grab your curette, you put the curette in the hole, you just kind of scrape just within the kind of three millimeters right around that hole. And this is, again, just a little bit of that extra kind of surgical trauma that converts this dysfunctional immune response that is HS into one that is a healing response. You're not going to get a whole lot. Don't be surprised. If you get pus, great. If you only get a little bit of stuff like this, it doesn't look like much. It's probably just inflamed fat and some immune cells and a little bit of blood. But again, cure at the pocket put in some gel phone, slap on a Band-Aid. This heals, again, looking like a punch scar. It's four millimeters, and patients hate the numbing. So I'll be completely honest with that. Numbing up inflamed skin does not feel good. But you talk them through it, you try and use Lido with Epi, you try and make it warm, you have the bicarb in there, but they can get through it because they know they're gonna feel better afterwards. And you might say, well, gosh, how could it feel better you know, afterwards? Well, number one, it's numb, so that's better. Number two, patients come in and they say, you know what, having this wound, whether it's from a punch de-roofing or a large surgical excision, that pain is not like HS pain at all. HS pain is like nothing in the world. I would rather have surgery than have HS pain because I can deal with the surgical pain. So these patients, if it's the first time that you're gonna be doing it with someone, you can reassure them the pain is gonna be less afterwards. So moving from Ray who had stage one HS to Gina who has stage two, why does she have stage two? Because she has multiple lesions, some of which have resolved, some of which are active, but not a lot of tunneling or fistulas, and it's not confluent involvement of the whole underside of the breast. What are our options for her? So yes and. Yes and medical and surgical. So I would say that the same options that we offered to Ray are fine for Gina. So still ILK is an option, but you can't inject 20 different sites. Laser hair removal, she doesn't have hair in some of the spots where she has stage two HS. You can do the adjuncts, but we're starting to get a lot more scarring. And this is the HS that is going to change this woman's life in a negative way. So we need to get it under control. So clinical trials for stage two patients are a great option. And it's important to think of these clinical trials early because as soon as they get a biologic in their system, they need to have a washout of six months before they can be considered for a clinical trial. That's impossible. It's impossible to wait six months to get into a trial. It, you know, it's physically possible, but it's just like mentally a very big stumbling block. So if you're looking at a patient who you think would benefit from a biologic, I kind of put my brakes on. I'm like, all right, let me mention clinical trials. And we have a list of all the clinical trials that are going on in our region and the phone numbers for those offices. If it's not possible or they're not interested, 
yes, move on to the biologic, but don't do it in isolation. So the idea of the approach to acne, which is if you're bad enough to get isotretinoin, we stop all the antibiotic and the tretinoin and the benzoyl peroxide, and now you only do the isotretinoin. That is not the way to think about HS. With HS, you start your biologic and you pile on everything else because none of them is really 100% adequate to control HS. And we can't sit around and wait for the biologic to kick in. If somebody's bad enough, put them on the biologic and do everything else in the meantime. For the patients on the biologic, it's not always 100% adequate. So surgery still has a role for the flares that might come and for the persistent tunnels that are still under the skin. There's still a role for some of these more limited surgical excisions that we can do in our office called marsupialization or regional excision. The extensive excision is what get, gets done by a plastic surgeon. Um, and so if they are really not under control um, and they say, you know what, I just can't deal with this anymore, we can't kind of pick, at it, pick away at it with all these individual therapies, it's worth it to me to have my whole axilla excised. That's what a plastic surgeon can help us with. But I think it's worth trying other things before something as big as an extensive excision. So what's some of the data for the biologics? And that's really adalimumab and infliximab, but I'm gonna tell you some data about other things that maybe you haven't heard of. So adalimumab, I think you have heard of. We use dosing very similar to Crohn's disease, which is helpful for me because at least in my electronic medical record, I can just write adalimumab Crohn's and it pops up the right treatment rather than psoriasis. So the loading dose, along with more frequent maintenance compared to psoriasis, this is one of the big troubles we have, you know, with the uh, age of kind of smart orders and you're in a hurry is you put in adalimumab, you see the 40, you hit enter, and you got the psoriasis dosing, which is every other week. And what's also important to keep in mind is, again, it is not 100% adequate. While it is FDA approved and we can get it for people, it is not the panacea. So the sort of grading or sort of goal that we had when we measured or looked at this drug was 50% improvement. So earlier, you know, you were talking about psoriasis and you talked about PASI 75 and you talked about ACR 20s. So this is sort of along that, it's 50% improvement. So in the world of psoriasis, nobody thinks that 50% improvement is adequate, but we seem to be willing to accept it for HS. At least for now, we will not for much longer. So with adalimumab, at least what did we see with this um, goal of 50% improvement? We saw that about 50 to 60% of people had this 50% improvement. That's kind of a weird statement, but think about it. 50% of people had 50% improvement. That doesn't sound like enough, at least not for one drug. So this is why I add more onto it all the time, the spironolactone, the doxycycline, the topicals, the regional surgery. And you also have to keep in mind that this is a relapsing and remitting disease. So the placebo side of things had some amount of improvement just by chance. So that 50 or 60% was not all due to the drug because 25 to 30% of people would have some amount of improvement anyway due to that roller coaster from hell. So the number of people you would need to treat in order to get one more person to have benefit over placebo is three to four people. You need to treat three or four people 
with drug in order to have one more not due to the natural course of disease. So the pictures here show, we always put our best pictures into publications, of course, is some amount of improvement. Like, that's pretty good. But we just aren't getting it in every person. And we're not getting it at every body site. And so that's why there are still all these clinical trials that are happening. So HS surgery. I told you that if you left here only thinking about clinical trials, I would be pretty happy. But honestly, the second thing I want you to leave thinking about is you can do HS surgery. You can do a punch deroofing, and you can take care of this really annoying persistent nodule. And if you get pretty comfortable with that, know that you can do HS excisions. If you can cut out a melanoma, if you can cut out a squamous cell, you can cut out a track of HS. And in fact, it's even easier because you don't close it. You cut it out, and it granulates in afterwards. So part of the hard work is actually the communication up front, which is telling people, you know what? I'm going to numb you up. I'm going to cut out this fistula, and then you're going to take care of it for three months afterwards. What do you say? And they have to be OK with that. So it is a pretty uncommon person where I have that talk, and they're like, yeah, I'm so excited. Let's do it. They're like, I have to think about this. And they have to plan their life around it, and that's absolutely fine. But for the right person who recognizes that a fistula is just not going away with all your medical therapy, cutting it out, just cutting around it and sort of probing the edges with your forcep, just kind of feeling them and seeing if there's any lift in that tissue, like a weakness or a defect, and then you go back and cut that out as well. And then you just, again, you know, you cauterize this, you put some Vaseline right into the defect, and then gauze, bandage, three months later, this actually heals first from the bottom. So I always prep people and I say, you know what? Your body has to fill this in first before it starts to shrink it down. But what's amazing is that stars contract, scars contract. And so what's a barely visible line is not due to surgical closure. It's due to the natural healing process of this skin. Here's what's called a marsupialization. So similar types of lesions, these very deep tracks of inflammation. If you press in the middle, stuff shoots out in all three places. What you can do is say, you know what? I'm not sure that I want to necessarily give you a full thickness defect. But what you can do is put numbing in a ring block all around the outside of this. And then you take your forcep and your scissor, and you cut a line just down the top. So this is like if you had a paper towel tube and you're just cutting along the top of the tube. And what you see is this, what's called a gelatinous matrix. It's this shiny, what almost look like a pyogenic granuloma, um, but it's not, it's HS. This is the curette that the surgeon's using to scrape out all along this track. This white here is actually intact fibrosis and dermis, so you can feel the base of it. You're going to hit that hard fibrotic base with your curette and know you don't have to go any deeper. This is all very mushy and comes out very easily. So these are just kind of two variations of the same thing. This, you're cutting all around it and under it. This, you're just cutting the top of it open. You're kind of splaying it open. You're just scraping out the inside, and then the healing process is the same heals from the bottom, shrinks in the from the side, and contracts. Now, this is a person who has stage 3 disease. 
So this is the time where you walk into the room and you're like, you need a biologic. Whoa, 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 breaks clinical trial. Is there one that you qualify for, one you're interested in, willing you're, you're willing to do, because this is somebody that we really want to consider for clinical trials. So this is someone where if you do this stuff, it's probably not going to do very much. So I tend to kind of save my effort, move straight to clinical trials, and start to have conversations about biologics, regional excisions for persistent disease, or even IV erdipenem or IV antibiotics. So I tend to try and quiet people's disease down first and then go back and consider which places are not quieting down and might benefit from the marsupialization or that kind of localized excision. But my goal is to try and medically manage as much as I can first, and then go back and start thinking about surgery. So biologics, we talked about adalimumab, infliximab is also an option, but anakinra and its cousin, canakinumab, these are IL-1 blockers, are also options. Anakinra is a daily injection because it has a very short half-life, and that's a little bit annoying. You know, already I think people have this like reaction to like giving themselves a shot every week, so doing it every day is kind of a, a tough pill to swallow, pun intended. Um, so Anakinra, though, has been studied, and you can see here from week zero when they entered the study to week eight, you can see a sense of healing at the surface. The problem is that when you stop the drug, and they stopped it at week eight, when they came back eight weeks later, their disease was right back to where it was. And so while we can quiet the disease down, we sometimes need to say, well, if we quiet it down, is surgery then easier to do? Is it a smaller defect? Or let's try and find the spots that say don't completely resolve like these tunnels, and let's go surgerize those and maybe make it an easier job because they're not as inflamed. Um, but anakinra is one of those biologics that doesn't always get thought about and can be an option for the people who say don't get sufficient improvement on adalimumab or infliximab. So this is the importance of considering medical and surgical therapy. Because when you have people show up at a surgeon's office, they do what they do best. And this is not absolutely necessary. Because in somebody with the same amount of disease, you can get a really good improvement. And with medical therapy, I'd argue that this surgery would not have been done. Now, they're two different people, but they had a very similar disease at baseline. So my goal is, if you run into your plastic surgery colleagues, colleagues who make referrals for HS, get them sent to you first because otherwise sometimes they end up with a much larger job than they may have needed. Use medical therapy, but if it doesn't work, yes, sometimes we need the plastic surgeons to help us out. And this is a reinforcement of that. So this is a study showing that the combination of a biologic plus surgery lowers disease activity more than either one alone. So what you're looking at is the risk of failure. So one is high failure, zero is very low rate of failure. The people who had both are the people in the green line, very low rates of failure over the course of this study compared to the people in gray who had surgery alone, 
Black was the biologic alone, and blue was they just watched them and observed them. So by combining surgery and biologics together, we can keep people under control better than doing just one or the other. We can do medical therapy most of the time. We can even do some of these small surgeries, keep that in mind. So the times that you can do both for your patients yourself is great, but if it's a bigger job, put them on the biologic, communicate with the plastic surgeons, then at least our plastic surgeons are willing to do surgery while people are on their biologic, knowing that it's keeping their disease under control and it might decrease the risk of complications afterwards. So remembering the side effects, because remember at the beginning, we sort of felt like we only had clindamycin, doxycycline, and prayers. But antibiotics after antibiotics without stopping is not a great way to treat HS, and it's a good way to encourage bacterial resistance. So there was a study that was done and showed that there's a higher rate of bacterial resistance for our patients with HS who are on antibiotics. So when people are using topical clindamycin in blue here, they 63% of the bacteria isolated were resistant to it. Compared to if people weren't using topical clinda, resistance rates were much lower. For people who uh, had bacteria and were on Cipro, 100% of their isolates were resistant to Cipro after being treated with it. Compared to people who weren't on Cipro, resistance was pretty uncommon. Similar for Bactrim, very high rates of resistance when people are on it. So you could say, but HS is an infection, so why does that matter? I, th I think you know that resistance matters, and it matters because those drugs are now not going to work on other bacteria, which are maybe not the target of why you use them. Maybe you were trying to treat some staph in that lesion. Maybe there was a cellulitis, but using antibiotics without stopping or thinking that it's really going to help the HS is not going to help that person as a whole when they need that Cipro or Bactrim later. Now, what was also interesting was that they looked at tetracyclines. There was no significant resistance uh, brought on by the use of tetracyclines or oral clindamycin. Now, arguably, we don't use a lot of oral clindamycin. Um, that's more commonly used in Europe, where they love it. Um, personally, I'm a little bit leery of the risk of C. diff colitis, so it's not my go-to. So thinking about these adverse effects, we mentioned how in acne, we've learned from their literature that when you combine benzoyl peroxide with your oral antibiotic, it prevents the resistance or the development of resistance in those bacteria. So why can't we do that in HS? Well, actually, there's some data showing that if we use an antibacterial wash, whether it's benzoyl peroxide or chlorhexidine, it helps because in the groups that don't, the people who have antibiotic alone, they have higher rates of antibiotic resistance compared to the people who did use these antimicrobial washes. So I always preface my conversation with my patients because I'll say, I'd like you to get one of these washes. They're like, it doesn't work. I'm like, okay, I know, I totally believe you. It's, it's really, I don't expect it to work on your HS, but I wanna protect your bacteria from getting resistant to the antibiotic. So that's the other important thing is, if you guys think that watches are gonna help a ton with HS, it's a pretty rare patient that I've met who agrees with us. So watches are not necessarily used to treat HS, especially the stage two and stage three. It's meant to say decrease the odor from the bacteria that are causing it, that are living in that drainage, and it's also helping to protect these rates of uh, bacterial resistance. 
So we talked about how maybe for the stage one or really early stage two, we might consider using low-dose doxycycline because doxy is one of the only antibiotics that's proven to have anti-inflammatory effects um, at low doses. You want to get it below 50 to have this. This is data from ACNE showing that you can have a similar reduction in inflammatory lesions with low dose in the column on the left and typical dose, which is 100 milligrams, for uh, the column on the right. So this literature really made me change my practice for acne, which I use a lot more low-dose doxy now, but it's also changed my practice for uh, hydramnitis as well. And what's also useful to know is that because it's a lower dose, many of the side effects of doxycycline are dose-related, so people have much less uh, photosensitivity and esophagitis stomach upset, um, anywhere from four to seven times lower rates. All right, so wrapping up HS treatment, which of these is a topical therapy that can be used for new or existing lesions? Good. Resorcinol is a treatment that can be used, and arguably the 18% that put benzoyl peroxide, it's not wrong. I just don't think of benzoyl peroxide as a really, uh, what, a disease-modifying treatment. It's more an adjunct, and I'm not expecting it to do a ton. But of all the things on this list, resorcinol is the most likely to make an impact. Good. All right, how much time does it take for uh, intralesional catalog or uh, triamcinolone to result in significant improvement in pain? Good. What? That's a Nittany Lion. Brian, you're so sweet. So I'm from Penn State. That's our mascot. Um, so yes, one day. You can tell that patient there's going to be a pain today for an improvement tomorrow, 24 hours. Call me if you're not noticing a lot of improvement. All right, 95. Awesome. All right. Who is a candidate for combination medical and surgical therapy? Which of these stages? Awesome. You have a medical and surgical treatment for every stage of HS, whether it is a small punch deroofing or a large regional excision. Great. All right. Which of these is a first-line surgical therapy for a persistent nodule in a, we'll say, a stage 1 HS? Arguably, it could be a, you know, a nodule in somebody with any stage. Deroofing, marsupialization, just excising a lesion or doing an entire regional excision. Great. Awesome. All right, so yes and. Walking to that room for that patient with HS and being willing to roll with what they ask and thinking creatively outside of the box and combining therapies together and thinking about the adverse effects. Medical and surgical approaches for acute and chronic 
thinking about resistance and the movement away from antibiotics, especially since this is not a bacterially driven disease. This is an inflammatory disease. If people ask me, is my HS autoimmune? My answer is, yeah, in a way. Their body, it's working too hard. And so many people with HS think they have these lesions because their immune system doesn't work. And that's like a terrible thing to feel, that your immune system is you know, like defective in a way that's weak. Um, I'm like, no, your immune system is overactive. It's attacking stuff it shouldn't attack. We don't know why, we don't know what, but it's working too hard and we have to try and change that. Um, yes and, creative therapies, whether it's looking at clinical trials, using these antimicrobial watches to watch out for resistance, or in the more mild uh, people, uh, thinking about low-dose doxycycline. Um, and again, hopefully this talk is very different in 2019. So evaluations. Thank you. So um, great question. Clinical trials. Uh, so clinicaltrials.gov. Arguably, our government does not make the most beautiful websites, but um, it is functional. Um, a lot of your regional institutions are trying to get people into clinical trials. So like my institution has something called Study Finder, and we you know, put on our card studyfinder.psu.edu. So that way, patients, practitioners can get on. Um, but depending on where you live, you can always count on clinicaltrials.gov. Um, if you have an academic institution near you, just reach out to, often there's a clinical trials nurse or, who is also the clinical trials coordinator, and they can give you all the information because, again, they are trying to get people enrolled. Um, have you tried over-the-counter resarcinol? Uh, no. So I think part of the challenge is that we need to incite, just as we do with that punch deroofing, a significant amount of sort of a paradoxical inflammation, like a contrary, annoying, more productive inflammation. And 2% resorcinol is so safe, you can sell it over the counter and put it on your face. So it's probably just not gonna do enough inflammation. Um, arguably, I haven't tried it, so let me know if it works. Um, I stick with the 15%, which was what in this, was in the studies. Um, what's the largest nodule or abscess that I felt comfortable doing a punch deroofing on? So great question. Uh, I've probably done punches on something as big as three centimeters. Uh, the limitation is how big a punch I want to put over and how far I'm willing to kind of scrape blindly under the skin. So at least, you know, when I was being trained, you don't like put your instruments into a place you can't see because you don't know what you're scraping or doing, which is why when I curette, I go about three or four millimeters around that hole. It's really not very far. If I feel like it's a pretty big spot, then I'm gonna do the marsupialization, which is where I'm gonna remove the roof, be able to visualize and scrape out everything. So visualizing, especially in some of these structures where things could be deep uh, and important structures are nearby, um, I would say don't scrape too far and maybe limit it to about three centimeters. Is resourcenol okay to use in pregnancy? Great question, I neglected to mention, there's no great data, so it's sort of akin to category C. So um, I would say at this point, depending on your patient population, you could say, I don't have any data, it's a small surface area, it's probably not getting into your blood, um, or you could say, my patient population or this particular patient is pretty cautious, maybe just best to uh, let it go. Um, do you use topical or oral dapsone? So I don't use topical dapsone uh, for a couple reasons. One is it can just be really pricey, and it's a not very powerful medication in acne. So 
with HS being as big and as deep and as powerful as it is, I don't have a lot of hope that topical Dapson is going to help a ton. Again, if you have a contrary experience, I think it's important to put it out there in the literature because, you know, it's just not well known. Um, oral Dapsone can be an option. Again, my, my problem with Dapsone is just this is a long haul condition. Like Dapsone, we're not using like Doxy, and Dapsone is not like other antibiotics where we're really going to need it for something. Um, leprosy is not rampant, at least not in central Pennsylvania. So I think that you could put somebody on that sort of like an adjunct, like we do with spironolactone, but the monitoring is just a, a huge hassle. Um, so it's just not my go-to. Um, but you will see it in the guidelines, both the European and there are going to be North American guidelines coming out in the next few months. Um, they're written. They should be coming out pretty soon. Um, how do I code for a punch roofing? Do you send the tissue off for culture or H&E? Um, so I don't do a culture or H&E. Um, you're going to grow stuff. That's just what HS does. But it's not infected. So I'm not going to change what I'm doing with the information. It's now just extra information. So I'd rather just not have the information if I'm not going to use it. You're going to grow weird stuff out of HS sometimes. You're going to get Proteus. You're going to eat, get E. coli. You're going to get Enterococcus. You're going to get all kinds of stuff. And it might freak you out. But if you look at it and you just see a nodule or an abscess, it's not going to change your treatment. HS gets colonized by some bacteria but it doesn't mean that it's infected by those bacteria. Um, how do I code it? So there are CPT codes for uh, excisions of HS. There are also CPT codes for incision and drainage of abscesses. So I tend to use those for depending on the uh, procedure I'm doing. Um, I do send my specimen down to my colleague uh, who does studies. Otherwise, if I didn't have her, I'd probably just throw it out. Um, that would not be true if I was doing a bigger excision, say, in the groin or the axilla where it's been long-standing. I want to get that section to look for squame, so don't throw the, those out. Um, do I do ILK after marsupialization? I don't, only because the, after the marsupialization, it heals up great. So um, it's just it's incredible the amount of uh, reduction in pain that those patients have. Uh, and again, scraping it out kind of seems to shut down that immune response. So I don't need the, the ILK to do it. Um, how well does liposuction help HS? That's a great question. There are definitely some places, not so much in the US, but uh, in Europe, um, and internationally where they've done uh, suction curatage, especially in the axilla. They make an incision, incision uh, near the axilla, and then they go up underneath the apocrine and the hair-bearing area, and they scrape up against the skin. Um, it's not done routinely. Again, the problem with HS is there isn't a high level of data. So it's just not something that I tend to do. So in a sense, liposuction of HS is not a treatment for HS. But this idea of sort of like a curatage of the underlying skin can help. Um, if this is also a question about like, would weight loss help HS? Uh, there have been a couple of very small studies showing that gastric bypass has helped uh, pretty significantly in some people with HS. But I have plenty of HS patients who have had a gastric bypass, or you know now they do the sleeve. Um, but 
they haven't had that much improvement. So I tend to see if it's a possibility for them and I send them to our bariatric surgery clinic, but I don't give them inappropriate hope. I say, you know what, this is probably a good idea just for your general health, but, and if it helps with your HS, great. I just don't want you to go into it unnecessarily expecting like it's gonna cure your HS because it might not. Um, have I seen high elevations in lymphocytes and neutrophils after starting Humira? Uh, no, not after starting it, but this is a group of patients that if you run a CBC with a diff, you're gonna get some wild numbers. Like they are really elevated because of this chronic inflammation. Um, so isotretinoin can be effective. Um, we don't have great comparisons. The way that we measured HS back when a lot of the isotretinoin studies were done has changed to the present day. Um, there's lots of people who think that it's a great medicine and it probably does work. That's why I'm using it in this young man who has that uh, sarcoma, um, but it's not something that works after you stop it. Um, yeah, so clinicaltrials.gov or study finder in your area. Are there any more, Brian? Resourcenol use short term. Oh yeah, so great question. So I would say think of resourcenol like you think of topical steroids for eczema or psoriasis. You use it at the first sign of a lesion and while you have a lesion, but you don't use it on normal skin in between flare-ups. So um, you're just using it um, on active lesions. When would a medication like mycophenolate, cyclosporin, or dapsone have a place? Um, so dapsone, if you used it, is not gonna be nearly as effective as uh, many of the biologics. There's a little bit of data on cyclosporin, sort of anic data showing that it can be effective, but even for uh, psoriasis where it's incredibly effective, it's not a long-term therapy. So it's not a long-term therapy in HS as well. Uh, and so these are not go-to medications. I think in the upcoming guidelines, uh, there are, uh, the biologics are really much more favored over these two medications. Um, do we see new onset psoriasis in HS after starting adalimumab? So that's a great question. So far, I haven't seen it, but there are reports of the opposite. So people have started TNF inhibitors and gotten drug-induced HS, uh, which is pretty crazy. Uh, there's also reports of people who were started on BRAF inhibitors, so vemurafenib, and they got HS afterwards. Um, so we're learning more about the pathophysiology through these sort of accidents of drug-induced HS a little bit. Any last ones? Yep, so I just don't personally combine the ILK and procedures because I find the procedures are pretty helpful um, in, on their own. I call it a de-roofing, a um, sort of an incision and drainage because there isn't a better procedure for it or sorry, a CPT code for it, but there are CPT codes for the excisions. Um, distinguish recurrent folliculitis on skin folds versus HS. So a great question. In some ways, they aren't different. So people with HS, especially stage one, sometimes don't have these big hard nodules. Sometimes they just have folliculitis that is always popping up and recurring in their flanks. Some people who have very typical nodules and abscesses also have folliculitis. So folliculitis is one of those findings that can go along with HS, just as PG can go along with HS, just as pyelonidal cysts can be part of HS. All these sort of neutrophilic hair follicle or gland-related diseases with tons of neutrophils can be associated with HS. Topical retinoids, I don't. 
I work for a plastic surgeon following regional excision. Oh, okay. So if um, if somebody has a, one of those huge, you know, surgeries and they get new lesions, which can happen, um, are they treated as stage one or two? I think that's absolutely appropriate. If somebody just gets one or two nodules right at the edge of the scar, does it mean you absolutely have to run right back into the OR and do this huge excision? I would say no. In this day and age, you want to consider the medical therapies, maybe consider some antibiotics, some spironolactone, depending on their gender, for an asteroid. Think about biologics. Think about the resourcenol. I think there's a lot of things that you can now do, and I think it's sort of our job to collaborate uh, with our uh, people in other disciplines to try and find a nice balance. Um, metronidazole for fistulas, as they do in Crohn's. So metronidazole uh, is a treatment that you can use for stage two disease, especially the European guidelines. They like to combine their antibiotics. So they'll use clindamycin plus rifampin plus metronidazole. Um, the hard thing is that metronidazole kills a lot. So those regimens, they're killing a lot of things, especially including things in your gut. Uh, and metronidazole can have some nasty side effects when you're on it chronically. So it's just important for all of these to kind of put people on them, give them a deadline of 8 to 12 weeks, and really be honest with yourself and ask the patient to be honest with you, did it help? Because if it did not, it is not something to keep hoping that after the third month or the fourth month or the sixth month that it's going to kick in then, because it's not. Uh, yep, so the clinical trials we talked about. Rate or incidence of infection with these. So really low. I would say that most of the research, so really big numbers looking at these surgeries and adverse events is uh, recurrence. So there was a pretty decent systematic review looking at uh, HS surgery. And there is a risk of recurrence. Uh, closing the uh, skin primarily has the highest risk of recurrence, which is why I tend to just leave things open and let them heal secondarily. Doing flaps or grafts uh, has a similar uh, decreased rate of recurrence, but infection is pretty uncommon for those smaller surgeries like I do in the office. Now, when you're cutting out somebody's entire perineum or the entire buttock, that is an incredibly morbid surgery, which is why it's so important to not jump into it unnecessarily. Those people are in the hospital for weeks. They're going through PT. Sometimes they need a diverting uh, ostomy. Um, infection is not uncommon. You know, they're getting, um, they're, they're laying in a hospital bed, so it's difficult to just do everything afterwards. Um, but rates of infection are pretty uncommon for those small things. Um, what else? So we talked about the coding and clinical trials, so that's great. Um, I'm going to maybe put in a suggestion to the HS Foundation. So if any of you are doing the run on Saturday morning, um, thank you. It's uh, benefiting the HS Foundation. And this question made me think, uh, after all those questions, that the HS Foundation might be a great place to be able to just kind of uh, shuttle people right to this information rather than trying to go through clinicaltrials.gov. So um, I'll talk to the leadership and see if it's something we can do to just help get it out there. Um, do I put people on antibiotics after a procedure? No, not automatically. Um, 
Do they stay on a biologic? Yes, personally I leave my patients on the biologic when either I do the surgery or I just like pray that my plastic surgeon is willing to do it. They often take our advice on these patients. Um, when I start people on a biologic, I keep them on the oral antibiotic and everything else. So I'm just kind of adding to it. And then I start taking away the pills once I get people to a good place. Uh, I use acetretin occasionally. It's still pretty pricey. Methotrexate, not so much. Um, second line antibiotic with a tetracycline allergy. That's a great question. Um, I probably would go to clindamycin. Rifampin can play a role. The metronidazole, like you guys mentioned. Uh, managing teens the same way I manage adults. If all the more reason, I jump on them more quickly and I try and educate them about how important it is to get this under control early rather than later. So that way they can learn how not to have pain, how not to hide it, and how to adjust to having it. All right, one more question. Have I prescribed low-dose isotretinoin as long-term therapy? I haven't personally, again, just that darn eye pledge is a big problem. So thanks for staying so long. I really appreciate your attention. Have a great time. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.